Hello and welcome to a special episode of the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and this episode is different. Imagine listening in to a conversation between one of the nuclear industry's newest recruits and one of its earliest pioneers. Dr Tim Gregory joined the National Nuclear Laboratory in 2020 as an analytical nuclear chemist after publishing his popular science book, Meteorite. Dewar Matthews joined the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority at Harwell in 1962 and is now a visiting professor at the University of Manchester. There will be a lot to talk about, so Tim, you have some questions. Over to you. Thank you very much and thanks for setting this up, Andrew. As as someone who has been in the nuclear industry for a single digit number of months, to have the opportunity to speak to someone who's been in the nuclear industry for decades is, is quite something. So, Duan, you know, I've just started out in the nuclear industry. And one thing that I ask new starters at NNL is what brought you here? You know, what, what motivated you to go into the nuclear industry? And so I'll put the same question to you as someone who's a bit more seasoned than a new starter, perhaps. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated story, but um, it started off with me wanting to be a doctor. No, wow. Um, You know, my mother was a nurse, so I I had these role models. But the the problem was I went into secondary school in the Isle of Man, which was, um, they had a funny system. They called it bilateral comprehensive education. So basically it was a grammar school and secondary modern school with a technical school in the middle. I I must have done quite well in the the exams because I, I got into the grammar school stream. Uh, and I started learning Latin. And at that time, you had to have Latin to uh, get entry to university to study medicine. Oh, really? When was this? Which decade was this? This is in the late 1950s. And I got bumped into the technical stream and I couldn't do Latin anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> but it really was a very good thing that happened because I would have made a lousy doctor. I would not want to be treated by me. <laughs> so I, I did technical English. I did physics and uh, chemistry and lots of mathematics. And the mathematics was better because we had the technical um, O-level, which included calculus. That opened physics up to me, and physics just changed once I'd I'd learned calculus. But the real thing that started it was I had an uncle. He said he was a curator at Leicester Museum. I think he was a cleaner. (laughs) He would send me things that he got from the gift shop. It was the International Geophysical Year in 1958. And in 1957, there was a book published about what was going to happen in the International Geophysical Year. And and I just soaked it up. You know, there there were plans for satellites and how the Americans were going to have the first satellite and uh, all the various things that were going to happen in the International Geophysical Year. But of course, the first Sputnik went up. Complete surprise (laughs) for everyone particularly for the Americans. That really captured my uh, imagination. But then this uncle sent me uh, a book which was covering achievements of British science and engineering. And in it, there was uh, a part on nuclear power, a part on rockets and uh, jet engines because British invented jet engines. I was obsessed. I joined the ATC. Uh, air training corps and learned how to fly gliders and do all sorts of things that were really exciting things. So the problem is the Isle of Man, where I was growing up, doesn't have many opportunities for young people. So as I was not encouraged to join the sixth form, I was suggested that I should either join industry or the RAF. 
and get vocational qualifications. And it was pure chance. Uh, the Daily Mirror had an advert for scientific assistance. And I went off and had an interview at Harwell when I was 15. Okay. <laughs> and they, they gave me a place. And my parents took a holiday to Blackpool and tearfully left me on the bus down to Harwell. And uh, I started then at the age of 16 in September the 2nd, 1962. Wow. And I spent three months in the scientific assistance school which was in the hangar, hangar nine, which had the Gleep reactor. So I was working right next to a reactor and I learned about radiation protection. I learned about nuclear power. So that's how it happened. You've, you've painted a picture of a young person with sort of eyes wide open, looking at the world, going wow at everything, you know, learning calculus when you were 14. That's, that's pretty impressive. And, you know, having all, having all these interests and and what was it that sort of directed you towards Harwell for the first time? Was it just a, it was a chance thing? That, An advert in the Daily Mirror. And that, that, was, that was enough to send you there, just, just purely by chance? Did you have... Well, it, it, there was a, a couple of other triggers. One was the BBC on Saturday mornings would have science programmes. They would have reruns of the Christmas lectures. and uh, Right. And I learned about dislocations and metallurgy and uh, Lawrence Bragg on diffraction, all sorts of interesting things. And of course, nuclear power was one of the subjects. But the big thing was the wind scale fire. Now, you're living in Cumbria now, are you? Yes, I'm almost in the shadow of the chimney. <laughs> well, well you, you know what they say in Cumbria, if it's raining, you can't see the Isle of Man. But if you can see the Isle of Man, it's sunny. <laughs> That's exactly right. I could see the Isle of Man on my walk home from Central Lab today. <laughs> and, and so, you ended up at Harwell, okay, just by chance. You saw this advert in the Daily Mirror, and you obviously had a, an interest in science and study. And, and it... I was obsessed with science. Oh, right. Okay, so is, was that always there, would you say? Well, it, it was something that, that took the place of the desire to become a doctor. Right. And I think it was learning calculus was the, the key thing, because it suddenly opened up the world of uh, analytics Solving mechanical problems using, using calculus. It's uh, solving almost anything with calculus. Did it come naturally, would you say, calculus? I suppose it must have to, to, to some extent. Because uh, yeah. I, um, I, I really struggled, actually, with, with A-level maths. <clears throat> In the first week of A-level maths, we all had to sit an exam that would sort us into different classes. Oh, right. The better you did in the exam, you were, you were sat with the smart people. And I, um, I came second to bottom in the year group which was devastating, actually. And my math teacher turned around to me and said, Tim, you might want to consider maybe, you know, taking a different A-level than maths. But I knew that I, I needed maths so that I could understand physics because I was sort of obsessed with physics at the time. And I thought, no, I've got to do this. And I went to after-school classes every week during the first year of my A-levels. And I eventually managed to, to get the A that I needed to get into university. But it didn't come naturally at all. It felt like shoving a giant textbook into my head most of the time. But... <laughs> It obviously came on naturally to you. <laughs> well, one, once I was at Harwell and I did the three months uh, training, um, so I learned how to make a vacuum system or uh, did some glass blowing. They're all the things that lab assistants are supposed to uh, learn. And then it came for the selection period where they would apply for the people to, uh, to work in various departments. I desperately wanted to go into electronics because, you know, the first transistor computer in Britain was designed at Harwell in the 1950s. I didn't know that. that that's, a, that's a fun fact. And of course, I, 
they gradually the people disappeared as they were allocated. And then I ended up in the nuclear fuels department, which was uranium fuels. Uh, they were making things like uranium carbide by uh, arc melting. But they, they brought in ceramicists from uh, the potteries industry and they were developing the fuel for the AGR. I made some of the first AGR fuel that went into WAGR, the experimental stuff. I did metallography. I learned how to, uh, to do that. But the, the thing that really clinched it for me were, were, was that um, they had a, a BET. It measures the surface area of a powder. So you can get the activity of the powder for sintering. You, you had to measure the thickness of that layer, which, as it was radioactive, I did with a counter. But it then involved some really complicated uh, calculations. And I was the only person in the building who could do it. The, the way that you're talking about it, it, it sounds like what the scientists during the Apollo era in the United States, the words that you're using and the way that you're describing it and the things that you're talking about remind me of the way that the Apollo astronaut engineers talked about the Apollo era. Well, it, it was like that. So I, I made Cermet fuels. I made fuels uh, from uh, tungsten uranium carbide, which were coated with yttria, which were the cathodes of uh, direct conversion devices. And uh, they, were, they were developing those for space applications and things. Did you realize at the time that you were right on the forefront of human knowledge and, and engineering capability and scientific exploration? Because... Looking back now, you, you were doing a lot of firsts, okay? You were doing a lot of things that no one... Yeah, but I, I was a lab assistant. I actually found out the, the, the position of these things later on. You know, like recently, um, there's um, a, a summary report. Uh, it's like a meta report on what's in the, uh, the super archive. And they were describing all the things they were doing to develop the fast reactive fuel that was going in PFR. So it wasn't mixed oxide originally. They started off with metal fuels. Then they dumped metal fuels and they went on to carbides. I was making carbides uh, at that time. We, we were doing um, hydrostatic pressing and all sorts of fancy things. Uh, was it difficult work? That, that might be a strange question, but was it? You're relaying this very enthusiastically and you're almost... I can, I can feel the atmosphere at the time almost, the way that, you, the way that you're talking about it. But was it... Was it that exciting at the time? Was it, was it difficult work or were you sort of bounding to work every day? Well, it was fascinating and you got immediate satisfaction. I mean, like, like metallography, to make a really nice metal, metallographic uh, specimen. And, and you did your own photography. It has a dark room. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but no computers. In fact, I think it was all logbooks and slide rules. So I don't think there was even a calculator in those days. Do you think that you would have got as much work done if emails were in existence back then? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I used to read textbooks on the way into, uh, into work in the morning. Metallurgy textbooks and things like that. Because I, I wanted to understand what was going on. And was, it that, was it that curiosity that motivated you? Yes, yeah, so, well, I, I, if, if I'd have been chucked out, I would have been absolutely desolate. I don't know what I would have done because it... it yes. I, it, it's the biggest chemistry set in the world as well. You could open a cupboard and there was anything there. And um, of course, you had to resist the temptation of uh, doing bad things because there were some standard consistents who were thrown out for making... Uh, what, what are these uh, iodine compounds that explode? <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, you know so you, you had to be careful if you were dabbling but uh, and did you realize at the time the importance of the work that was done in, in that period of, of the history of nuclear well you know the the only thing that really brought it home was we were doing these dry runs for for WAGR and then we were doing an experiment in one of the uh, research reactors at Hobble, Dido or Pluto. And so I was given the samples to measure their surface area on, but I was told to be extra careful because these samples actually were enriched. Gosh. Because they were going to go into the research reactor. So you were a lab assistant at this time. How, how long? Yeah, it's called a scientific assistant. A scientific uh, assistant. How long did you do that? And where did, where did you go after well, this is quite a story. What happened was I, I took my ONC in uh, mathematics, pure physics, applied physics and chemistry, equivalent of four A-levels, uh, but it was done on day release <laughs> over two years. And uh, suddenly there were all these university places opening up. My friend said, well, do the first year of H&C and then you'll walk the first year of university. So I got my results, got a distinction and applied to the University of Surrey and had an interview. At the end of the interview, they said, well, we'd like you to come. I said, well, that's great. So I'll do H&C and then I'll see you in, in a year's time. And they said, no, can you come in three weeks? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I went back and I phoned up personnel. And I said, I've been offered a university place. Can I have unpaid leave? And so I can go to university. And they said, no. Oh. So, so I went, oh, God, I'm going to have to check my job in. So I, I talked to my boss, and he talked to the division head. Personnel phoned me up, and they said, we've talked to Berkshire County Council. We've got you a, a county major award. Off you go. <laughs> wow. So, again, a bit of, bit of sort of chance run in there. Yeah, so... Once I was there, the county major award was about a pound a day, <laughs> almost nothing. Right. And uh, within a year, I'd been given a bursary and I was put on my scientific assistant salary, which was a bit more. But after another year, they promoted me uh, to a assistant experimental officer. So I, I actually was the richest student in, in my year. And then after that, did you, did you return to Harwell? Yes, I, I had to return to Harwell because I'd sold my soul to them for the bursary. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> and and were, you, were you happy to go back? Well, I, I'd got myself a place with Bruce Bilby at the University of Sheffield. And Harwell said, no, uh, we want you back. And they gave me three choices of where to go. One was I could go to... Uh, the non-destructive testing department. And then I was offered to go with Brian Eyre. He was uh, later the head of AEA, and he was an electron microscopist. But people told me he was a real slave driver. So <laughs> I <laughs> thought maybe not. Um, so I ended up in the plutonium laboratory. So I went in, into the equivalent of the uh, fuels laboratory that I'd been in before doing the same sort of things, except for uh, they, they were with uh, plutonium fuels. And was this the first time that you had worked with plutonium on this level? Yes, it was the first time I'd... Uh, how did that feel? And that's quite a scary experience. How, how, tell us about that, the, you know, the, this, this infamous element, the, 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 the first synthetic element that, that humans laid eyes on. How did that feel? Well, the most important thing is that when, when you're working in, uh, with the uranium, the uranium carbides which are parafluoric and things like that you have to have a positive pressure in the club box an organ pressure to stop the air getting in and oxidizing the fuel so you're pushing against the glove 
And that's relatively easy. Yes. But with the plutonium fuel, what you have to do is that you mustn't have anything come out of the box. So they're negative pressure. And they're quite different to operate. The first task I was given by an old experimental officer, he said, fill this fine uh, tube for, for doing a, an X-ray analysis on, on something. And this is an almost impossible thing to do. But because it was a negative pressure box and it wasn't fighting against me, in fact, I found it easier and I could just do it because I was used to working in boxes. And they, they, they just couldn't believe <laughs> that this was rather a trick thing that they'd set up for me. <laughs> And do you, do you remember the first time you laid eyes on plutonium? Because I have yet to have that experience, actually. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I can't say I, I, I ever picked up a bullet of plutonium. I never worked on weapons, and the, the, the only people who actually saw live plutonium were, were the people working on weapons. So, but I, I saw a pure plutonium oxide. I did, I did density measurements on pure plutonium oxide. Wow. And the, the, the other thing I would say, it was beautiful stuff to work on because it was all from Magnox reactors. So it, it had hardly any minor axonites in it. So the neutron levels were almost zero and the gamma levels from it were, were really quite low as well. So you, you, you didn't have to take any precautions at all. We just had uh, perspex boxes. So I, I don't know whether you've been in a plutonium laboratory at, uh, at Sellafield to see the sort of shielding that you have to have on the boxes, particularly if it's BWR plutonium. I've seen glove boxes before, but they were not in use at the time. And so, and, and they were pretty heavily shielded. The radiological protection was quite, well, it was more than anything I've ever seen. I remember the, the, the first ones in the MOX demonstration plant, it looked like steampunk because they were shielded with mahogany. Oh, wow. <laughs> why, why mahogany? Is, is it got... Well, but to moderate the neutrons coming off uh, so they could be absorbed. Uh, more, more so than any other sort of wood? Is, is mahogany particularly good for that? Uh, dense. It's dense. Uh, so you've got a higher hydrogen concentration to slow the, slow the neutrons down so that the cross-section for absorption goes up. Uh, Brilliant. Brilliant. In, in this book that I'm reading at the moment, it talks about the early days of nuclear research. and Paraffin seemed to be the go-to material for moderating neutrons back in the day. Yeah. But... the, the I, I did my PhD on, uh, on uranium and uranium-plutonium carbide. But by that time, I was getting fed up with experimental work. The, there was a huge interest in developing numerical methods at that time. And one of the first things I did at university was learn how to program in Algol. I learned a, a lot of different numerical methods for solving differential equations, uh, which can, are the building blocks for making uh, computer models of of systems. But they got fed up with me at the plutonium lab and they traded me to a theoretical physics division where I joined a modeling group. And were you quite happy to go from a very lab-based environment into a very... I couldn't get out fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm the world's worst, exper worst experimentalist. I've got no patience. <laughs> and have you been in the lab much since? What, what's a lab? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I've, I've walked around loads of labs. <laughs> okay. I, I, you, I can make comments. You know, <laughs> piss people off by uh, telling them they're doing it wrong and things like that. Yes. <laughs> and so were you, were you still at Harwell at this time? Yeah, the, 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 I was in theoretical physics division at Harwell. 
in the 1970s, because of the modeling work, I got involved with safety experiments in France, in Cadrache, looking at blockages in fuel bundles. The French didn't have models like this, so my models were used to, uh, to analyze these experiments, which brought us into those experiments. I attracted the attention of the General Nuclear Safety Programme at SRD. And in 1979, I was appointed as the program manager for both fast reactors and general nuclear safety at Harwell with a budget of about 60 million pounds. And that was real 60 million pounds. Wow. But I continued working. We had a matrix system, so it was possible at Harwell to be both a program manager looking after budgets and representing the organization at committee meetings at Risley and to do research work. We ended up writing a code called Traffic. It's still possible to use traffic. It's part of the ANSYS suite of codes, and it covers a wide range of different fast reactor fuels, but also some thermal reactor fuels as well. And throughout throughout this whole period of time, was it was it still that sort of fascination with, for lack of a better word, with with, with the the science of it and the, the the inner workings of it that motivated you? Yes, and the the, the other thing was it was a community. And this is the thing which I think that young people now are missing a lot, because on the fast reactor program, for instance, we were working alongside CGB and then later BNFL when BNFL separated from UKAA and GEC and the nuclear power company, which then became NNC, which is now part of Jacobs. So you were working with engineers and as a, as a jobbing theoretical physicist, I could solve problems they couldn't solve because we, I had the uh, mathematical techniques that, that, that could be used. So, for instance, when, when we had a problem with the leaks in, in PFR, they were talking about um, shot peening the, the welds to uh, remove the uh, tensile stress on the, uh, on the surface, which were opening cracks, which were then being suffering from uh, a stress corrosion cracking. And they wanted to know what the stress distribution was. But it was before finite element models were fully implemented. So I solved it analytically. You know, I did it the hard way. Wow. Brilliant. And <laughs> was, was, were, this might be a silly question, and I guess it, it shows my, my youth, but were, were, were computers in wide use at this point? Could you, could you just rock up on Microsoft Excel and do a massive calculation? That was the other thing. Uh, when, when I started off in, uh, in plutonium ceramics division, I, I used to have to send packs of uh, blocks of cards off to, to a central computer. It was uh, an IBM 360 computer. And then later we had um, the, the Cray supercomputer which we, we, we made punch tape. So we had a teletype machine that, where we would uh, punch tape. So we kept a record of what we were sending so that we could repeat it again. And then later we, we moved to terminals. So we talked to the Cray computer by terminals. And then I stopped doing uh, that sort of work in, in 1989 for a very peculiar reason. It, it was because my staff uh, moved over to using uh, some workstations, Unix workstations. And we couldn't afford one for me. Whoa. Yeah, because I was the manager and I was the least important part of the team. You know? Interesting. So, so what, what did you do then? Well, what happened was UKAEA had been identified for restructuring by the government. And uh, I was asked to go and work for Brian Eyre, the guy I rejected, <laughs> uh, who was the chief executive of AEA Technology. 
which was the part of UKAEA that had been set up to do commercial work. So you, you've come a long way at this point from your, your sort of beginnings as a, you know, working in the lab. The problem was I, I got into management and I was made senior staff because I was managing a huge budget. And how long did you do that for? I did the managing the uh, the budget job for 10 years. And then I, I worked for Brian Eyre for, for two years. And then once the businesses were set up, I was made division head for materials and chemistry for the AEA technology reactor services business. It was the best job ever because I, I had the most super group leaders, the various people who were doing radiation and damage work, chemistry work, Winfrith and Harwell, microscopy with the FEG stems. And, and I, could, I could do a bit of theory work as well, um, not making models, but doing uh, analytical stuff and writing papers. And also I got to do things like I helped set up the NE qualification program, uh, Harmonization for, for Europe, and the AIMS project, which was to do with annealing the radiation damage out of pressure vessels in the in the Russian reactor, in the Soviet reactors. And was was that was that exciting work as well? Did you realise at the time, sort of? Absolutely, and you got to go to places like Russia. I'm still getting this sense of excitement. Yes, that that, that is just coming through. My wife complained that I'd sent dozens of people abroad. But I, I, I'd never given her the opportunity. She wanted to go to France, basically, and, you know, and live in a Provencal village. Well, I went off to do work in Cadarache. But the problem was I was a manager, so I, I couldn't do that. I had to allocate other people to do that. But in 1993, I was called in, into uh, Brian Eyre's office and was told, do you fancy going to Japan and becoming the uh, director for Asia Pacific? and set up legal entities in Japan and around Asia. So I, I, I went quaking to my wife and said, uh, uh, do you want to go to Japan? Yes! <laughs> it's not quite France, but it'll do. <laughs> well, it was better than France. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was more exotic. Wow. So she had a marvellous time for, for five years in, in Japan while I was... Well, in Japan, I was working until quite late every evening. And, uh, and then when we started setting up uh, uh, legal entities outside Japan, I was never off an aeroplane traveling about Asia. So uh, I had a hard life, but extremely interesting. And so we're, we're in the 90s at this stage. And this was in the middle of the right in the middle. of So the, the middle of the 90s, it's, it's a very, very different job to how it started out in the lab. Yeah, well, it... it, it you asked me, I've been in a lab. I saw a lot of labs in Japan, and uh, yes, and I, I took a lot of senior executives to dinner and uh, learned a lot about Japan and a lot about their programs. But what was even more exciting was going to Korea and China. Amisham International had set up a smoke detector facility in Shenzhen near Hong Kong, and AA had done the safety analysis on it, and then they decided they were going to be a pharmaceutical company. So the industrial isotope business and the smoke detector business didn't interest them anymore. And so I suddenly found myself in charge of a factory in China. Where, where, where on earth did you learn how to do that? Well, you don't. Um, you rely on really good staff, okay. uh, Chinese staff who, uh, who hold your hand and make sure you don't make a big mistake. And when did you come back from Asia? In 1999. And, uh, of course, uh, I was told, uh, well, we've got a good job for you. And when I when I got back, our, our chief executive at that time called me in the office and he said, 
you don't want to be head of materials in at Oldbaston, do you? I said, no, I don't want to touch nuclear weapons. So he said, well, I'll give you uh, four extra years and uh, you can take your pension at the age of 53. Wow. And, and wh- why the initial reluctance when it came to nuclear weapons, if you don't mind me asking? I, I, I don't really want to, uh, to dedicate my life to applying nuclear energy to, uh, to a destructive thing. And uh, also, I didn't know very much about nuclear weapons, uh, um, particularly the, the non-fission part of them. Uh, and so you, so you came back to the UK. What, what, what happened? Well, what, what, what happened was within three months of uh, leaving AEA and not being eligible to work for them again because I'd been made redundant, they didn't have anyone speak Russian on a TASIS programme. So they, they arranged me to book through a French company that was handling the, uh, the project. Um, and I, I spent two years... Uh, working uh, on the scientific cities program in 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 Russia, and so I, one one of the cities I worked with was Obninsk, and I, I worked with the IPPE uh, institute there, uh, w- w- who developed the lead cooled fast reactors. By the way, so I worked with them a bit on lead cooled fast reactors. Wow, that's brilliant. So, so, so Jude, what would be your best advice to Tim as he sets out on this new chapter of his career? The advice I used to give people was to establish yourself scientifically before you get involved with management, because you need some clout. You've got to write your 50 papers or something and make sure that you're recognised, in, preferably in more than one thing. <laughs> Don't be too specialised. And people can go down a little hole and become intensely uh, knowledgeable about some minute part of, of science. And the other thing I, I, I was going to say to you in, in terms of progressing your career is you may have some formal mentors, but what you need to do is to make friends with some of the older people who are established at the moment, who are the leaders in their fields. What, what, what you want to get out of them is to, uh, is to find out how they operate, but also to uh, use them as sounding boards for ideas that you have. And um, if, if, they, if it's rubbish, they'll tell you probably. Um, the, the other thing is to learn some things that you don't think you're going to need. And, you know, we talked about languages. Languages have been really important for me in, in being able to, to move around in, in, and, and to get information, uh, which I wouldn't be able to get if I, if I didn't speak them. But uh, learn a bit of economics, learn some law. Don't just be a STEM person. Be broad enough. That's um, that's that's good advice. I I certainly have a tendency, I think, sometimes to be too much of an insect, and in that I, I love to get really not obsessed. Well, maybe obsessed sometimes with one very very specific thing, and explore and go like as far down the rabbit hole as I possibly can with it, and understand everything about it. And I I often lose the bigger picture, certainly in the lab. Uh, so that's that's certainly something I will keep in mind, and uh, and understand the relationship of your work to the bigger picture. That that's the other thing that you need to do because some people, you know, they'll they'll slave away at, at something that in the end uh, people have lost interest in. Yeah, that's 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 certainly things I'll be keeping in mind. And and I'm, I'm eight months in, and I, I can already tell that 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 advice will go a long way. So thank you. Fantastic. Oh, look, thank you to both of you, Jew, and thank you for your 
your candor and your enthusiasm, which has shone through in talking about the last 60 years, pretty much working in the UK nuclear industry and also uh, in other parts of the world as well. And Tim, as you can hear, you know, this is a critical time for the nuclear industry. Uh, the, I always call this this decade we're in now a critical decade because this is the decade that we lose most of the advanced gas cooled reactors. We have to replace that nuclear power, that, that, that electricity and heat and hydrogen with new nuclear build. And it's hard, but we need the enthusiasm. We need the, the bright people, the scientists who can pioneer new technologies to bring down the cost to make this low carbon uh, technology a real contribution to net zero. So you join the industry at a fantastic time. I can feel it. It, it certainly feels like we're all at this inflection point at the moment and something it, it, I can feel it. I don't know. I can feel it in the atmosphere. We're in a critical period at the moment because um, we, we've had a, a really rough 11 years and we've not, not progressed as, we, as we'd hoped to uh, progress in those 11 years. And we've got a, a small window of opportunity uh, at the moment, and that's to, uh, to actually make a significant contribution to net zero. We, we've still got the best part of the decade to work on it. Well, with that challenge facing us, Thanks, both of you, for this, for this experiment. What would be really lovely to do would be to do this in a pub one time, maybe somewhere in Abingdon over, over a pint of speckled hen or whatever it would be down there. And uh, we can carry on all evening, I'm sure.